Thanks very much, guys. Um, we're in those verses in uh, 1 Corinthians, and I, I, just having them read, I expect you were thinking, my goodness me, I've not read this bit of the Bible before. Some people, or that doesn't sound like the sort of usual thing we look at when we look at the Scriptures. But this is what we're going to look at together. And I think it's really important that we look at it together, because I think a lot of Christians have a view of the world and of marriage that is based more on Shrek than the Bible. So uh, many of you will know Shrek, classic fairy tale film about a green ogre with a serious flatulence problem. There are actually, I think, Shrek 1, 2, 3, and 4. And uh, there's a talking donkey who's a sidekick and a gorgeous ogre princess who ends up being Shrek's bride. Uh, But that's not how it starts, of course. It's the classic fairy tale. So ogre with body issue falls for gorgeous princess who is waiting at the time to be rescued by her prince charming and to experience, do you remember, true love's first kiss. Eventually, Princess falls for Ogre, and they kiss, and she turns into the Ogre, and she lives with him happily ever after. And I think that's what most people think that life in the world should be like, normal life, without the Ogre bit, probably. Normal Christian life is boy meets girl, special girl that God has chosen for him, gets married, have kids, nice job, nice house, nice pension, nice people, nice life nice grandchildren, and they live happily ever after. It's the myth that's sold on hundreds of Christian websites on the internet. It's the myth that's sold in hundreds of Christian books across the world. It is reality for some people by God's grace, but it's actually got nothing to do with the Bible's view of the Christian life. So the Christian life in the Bible is primarily one of living in relationship with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, a relationship that's walked out in a life of obedience. And like the Lord Jesus, when we live a life of obedience, the world around us does not admire us, but it hates us for it. In the midst of that, we know Christ's love and forgiveness. We, we make Christ known to those who we meet because there's nothing more important than they come to know the Lord Jesus. And all the time, Christians are defined as being people who are waiting for the day when Jesus returns and they will stand before him and rejoice in being welcomed as good and faithful servants while he judges the entirety of creation. In fact, not just waiting for that day, longing for that day. This season of Advent in the calendar of the Church of England is four weeks when we think about not the coming of Christmas, but the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We preach week in, week out on his coming because that is the focus of the Christian life. And we're longing to see that day because as we look at the world around us, actually our heart aches to see suffering and pain and we long for it to be over. And we're longing to see that day because as we look at the world around us, we see the name of our God and our beautiful Savior, the Lord Jesus, dishonored. And we long to see the day when his name will be honored as it should be when he will receive glory and we will be with him forever. And then we will live happily ever after. Now, it looks like the church in Corinth had bought into the idea that this life was all there is, the here and the now. And what Paul is doing is he's writing them to tell how they should get a right perspective on their relationships. Because at the moment... Uh, They're like people who are 
standing in the fast lane of the motorway, deciding whether they look better in a, the red top or the green top, while the juggernaut of Jesus' judgment is heading towards them. They're thinking about things that he says really aren't the most important things in life. Their priorities are all wrong. And so what we're going to see tonight is it doesn't really matter whether you're single or you're married. There are much bigger issues at stake in this world. This is the heart of 1 Corinthians 7. It's the first heading we're looking tonight. It's this, the present crisis, the present crisis. Because look down to what Paul says in verse 25. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Uh, when Paul uses the term virgin, so he's probably just using it to talk about single people, sometimes male, sometimes female. That's not to assume that they've never had sex, though I guess it would be quite nice if they hadn't had sex. And look, Paul says, I, I can't refer back to some specific words of Jesus on this issue, but I'm an apostle appointed by God, so trust me on it, this is God's word to you. And look what he says in verse 26. Because of the present crisis... I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, we sit here comfortably in Chessington, you know, 2,000 years almost after Paul's writing, and we think, what crisis? I mean, does he mean the rising fuel bills? Is that the problem? Was there a run on the drachma in the Corinthian stock exchange? Perhaps he's got a leak in his bathroom, because that's a crisis for most people. But actually, Paul is referring to something very different. Some people think he's referring to a particular situation in Corinth. But I think the context in this chapter means he's referring to something far more global. Have a look at verse 29, for instance. Paul says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. Or the end of verse 31. Those who use things of this world as if not engrossed by them, for this world in its present form is passing away. The crisis that Paul's talking about is living in the last days. The days defined by the Bible is between the ascension of the Lord Jesus back into heaven and his return to judge the world. That is the crisis. In fact, the word crisis here used in the Greek is the word that is used for judgment. It's the crisis of living in the only time in history that God has given for the good news about Jesus to be made known. The crisis that today might have been the last day we had to see people saved. Saved from an agony of hell for the beauty of the new creation. See, our problem, of course, is that we don't see that crisis. We don't see heaven and hell in the eyes of our friends and our neighbors and and our family who don't know Jesus. And Satan's best weapon in Corinth, as Satan's best weapon today in the West, is to make Christians feel like there is no crisis, that we've got all the time in the world. Well, we do have all the time in the world. The problem is, that might not be much longer. Look what Paul says in verse 29. For the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. And then the end of verse 31, this world is passing away. You see, we don't know when the Lord Jesus will return. The time is short. We only know that he will return. You can think that that sounds crazy, that Christ will return to judge the world. The problem is that everything else that God has promised in the Bible has happened. And therefore, it's quite a safe bet to assume that this will happen. And if you read the Gospels, you'll find the teaching of the Lord Jesus is 
filled with references and parables that talk about his return to judge. You see, we might only have tomorrow to see those who we love rescued from a fate worse than death. And so Paul says in verse 27, Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. Frankly, whether you're married or not married, that is not your priority. Living wholeheartedly, living all-out God-glorifying lives should be your priority. Lives that honor the Lord Jesus. And of course, if everyone who professed the name of the Lord Jesus lived wholeheartedly for him, there'd be far fewer marriage problems. If husbands had a desire to bring glory to God by laying down their lives for their wives so that when they stood before the Lord Jesus in judgment, they were presented holy and blameless before them, before him. If wives wanted to submit to husbands as to the Lord so that their marriage was a a better picture of the relationship between Jesus and his people, the church. If single people were all out serving Christ with, with all that they had, seeking to be holy and compassionate and kind and gentle, then surely everyone would be more content in their relationship with Jesus and more content within the status they find themselves, married or single. Now, marriage, it's not a sin, says Paul. Let's be realistic. Look what he says in verse 28. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. We're going to have more on the troubles of marriage in a moment. But before we even consider who we should marry and who we shouldn't marry, we need to see marriage is not the biggest issue in anyone's life. As Paul says in verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. Now, isn't that a, a shopping list of what governs the emotions of our culture? Aren't they the things we're engrossed in? I think this is actually the, the biggest issue facing Christianity in the West today. I think it's the biggest issue facing us as a, as a church today that we don't sit light to the things of this world. I mean, have a look at what Paul is talking about in. Verse 29, he says, your relational state doesn't matter whether you're married or not. It's your emotional state in verse 30, if you're happy or sad. Your material state, what you own or not. Aren't those all the things that that bother us most day to day? Do I have enough money? Does she like me? What do my friends think about me? Is my house the way I want it? Are my clothes nice? How are my children doing at school? Am I going to get that promotion? Who will I marry? We are people by nature engrossed in the things of the world, aren't we? Just think, what do you worry about? What what do you talk about? What what do you spend your time on? What, What do you spend your money on? And I'm pretty sure that the reason the church is growing so slowly in this country is that we are people who don't live in the light of the present crisis. We're living for a world that, according to Paul, is passing away. Now, I have to say I'm regularly humbled by other people on this. I can think of uh, one 
young guy I was chatting to a little while ago. He was, he was looking for jobs, and he just wasn't getting the, the job that he wanted. He was applying here, there, and everywhere. He was pretty well qualified, and he said to me, Daph, look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'll, I'll, just, I'll get a job in the local supermarket as long as I can be around to serve in the local church. He had no aspirations other than being stuck into his local church. That's all he wanted to do. I can think of another guy I was chatting to recently who was telling me how his father and his other family members weren't Christians, and he just broke down into tears, you know, big, deep, sobbing tears about where his family stood with the Lord Jesus in the light of the present crisis. When was the last time you wept over your lost friends and family? I don't think I've ever wept over the lostness of my friends and family members who don't know Christ. And it's a cliched thing to say, isn't it? But it really is what Paul is saying is, what would your priorities be for tomorrow if you knew on Tuesday morning the Lord Jesus was going to return to judge the world? Would you get on with life as normal? Would you worry about what you were going to give and what you were going to get for Christmas? Or would we pray? Would we go? And would we invite people to be here next week at a carol service? Invite people to, to come and talk to us about what we believe. See, at the heart of this passage is not the issue of singleness and marriage. It's what we're living for, what we're engrossed in, living in the light of this present crisis, that today is a day of salvation and tomorrow may be the day of judgment. Getting married is not your biggest problem. In fact, getting married will bring you a whole new set of problems. Because that's the second thing Paul says. We live in the light of the present crisis. Now, let's be real about the problems of marriage. Paul describes it in verse 28 as many troubles. Literally, it's the sufferings in the flesh. The grass is not greener on the other side. It's just different. That's the message of this chapter. You know, first nine verses we looked at, the Apostle Paul's in his study, and there's a a couple coming to see him, pastoral situation. They say, look, Paul, um, uh, we're really stuck into serving at church. We just haven't got any time for sex, and and our marriage isn't going that well. And Paul says, look, you've got to make a priority of sex in your relationship. It's, It's what God's given you to keep you together. Then the next week, another couple comes in, and she says, look, um, he's not a Christian, and, you know, it's really hard to serve, and I think it's better if we split up. And Paul says, no, no, stick together. Whatever you do, stick together uh, for his sake and for the sake of the kids that they're raised in the church. And now we're in Paul's study again, and another couple have come in. and, And rather ironically, the week before, there was a couple who were married who thought life would be better if they weren't married, and now he's got a single person who's pretty sure that life would be better if they were. No, Paul, I need to get married. I'm I'm not fulfilled as a person. And Paul says, no, no, no. You don't understand. It's not about who you're married to. In fact, being married will present you with all sorts of problems. It it doesn't solve the heartache. It just gives it a new focus. Archbishop Geoffrey Fisher apparently once said, and you'll have to listen carefully to this, he said this, a woman is a great help to a man in the problems a bachelor never has. 
And that starts even before marriage. There's the wedding to plan, how, how big it should be, who should come, where should we hold the reception. And then you get married, and marriage inevitably leads to all sorts of questions. Uh, should we buy a house? Should we have children? Then maybe there's the heartache of not being able to have children, or the heartache of trying to raise children. Then there's the worries about the cost of living, because you're not just thinking about yourself anymore. Then there are concerns about the future. What will, will my kids do as they, as they grow up? And then there's the whole issue of sin. You see, I used to think I was a dreadful sinner. And I couldn't possibly get any worse. And then I got married. And I found out I was a much worse sinner than I thought I was. Because you see, when you're single, you can go around being selfish. And there's no other selfish person in your life to interrupt. But when you're married, you put two selfish people in the same house with two separate agendas. And then you introduce children... And you have a whole collection of selfish people basically wanting their own way. And you discover you're much less reasonable than you used to be. Marriage doesn't solve our problems. It just changes them. Look at what Paul says in verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. I I remember listening to a Christian man at a, a Christian holiday I was serving at say that he wished sometimes he wasn't married so he could get on with gospel work. And I thought, you're nuts. That's a dreadful thing to say. I've been married 25 years. I know exactly what he means there. <laughs> there are times when being married means you can't meet up with the struggling friend. Times when you can't visit an elderly saint. Because, well, look what Paul says in verse 33. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. Now, Paul's not saying you don't serve the Lord in the way that you love your wife or husband. It's not like Lord versus your spouse for your loyalties. He's just making a very practical point. When I have a blank page in my diary as a married man with children, it is not a blank page. It's not like, I can just do what I want now. No, rightly, I have before the Lord responsibilities to my wife. In fact, we saw at the beginning of the chapter, I have responsibilities to her physically in terms of sex. I have responsibilities to her in terms of caring for her, looking after her, teaching her the scriptures. I have responsibilities to my children to train and discipline them in the Lord. My life is just full of lots of other things that they wouldn't have, I wouldn't have if I wasn't married. In fact, one of the reasons you have less time to, to think about serving the Lord in other areas is because the Lord requires you to do a lot of things as a husband or a wife or a parent within marriage. Now, do you see that that Paul assumes in those verses we'll be wanting to use all of our time to serve the Lord in this present crisis? And he thinks, therefore, that the married person will only have one type of time, the Lord's time. And the Lord's time will be used serving the Lord in marriage, or the Lord's time will be using serving the Lord outside marriage. And he's saying, look, as a single person, you can just serve the Lord all the time, and you don't have to worry about this baggage that comes with marriage. One of our dangers is that we think we have three types of time. The Lord's time, marriage time, me time. Well, the Bible, Bible doesn't have that. It's all the Lord's time. And very practically, if you're married... There are all sorts of worries and concerns in your life that you don't have if you're single. And that's why we need to thirdly champion the privilege of singleness. The privilege of singleness. 
See, Paul, Paul's very practical. He, he knows that as a human being, you only have so much energy and so much time, so much thought and, and so much passion. And therefore, if we're married, a good deal of that will be consumed by our marriage. Whereas if we're single, we can be devoted more wholeheartedly to the Lord. Now, one of the things we need to understand as we think about the privilege of singleness is that it is only our relationship with the Lord Jesus that will last through death into eternity. Marriage won't. Jesus himself was asked about whether there'd be marriage in heaven, and he said this in Matthew 20 verse 30, 22, verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Therefore, in the new creation, there is no marriage. Sometimes people, in comforting others, will say, well, at least I will see my loved ones again in heaven. And in one way, that could well be true. But the difference is, you won't have a specific, unique relationship with them. You won't love anyone more than anyone else in heaven. You will have perfect love for all the people there. There won't be little individual separate family units where you'll get together with your family and rejoice. You'll love everyone in the same way. And that's great news if you're single. Because it means you're not missing out. The relationship you have with Christ is the relationship that actually will fulfill all your desires in eternity. You might be married for 30, 40, 50, maybe 70 years to your husband or wife. You're going to be married forever to Jesus. But, but look again at verse 35. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undevoted attention to the Lord. See, Paul doesn't want to restrict the people in Corinth. He's not saying they must remain single. He's simply saying being single is less complicated. Now, of course, the problem in our society is that we're not devoted to the Lord. We're devoted to finding true love's first kiss and living happily ever after. And so if we're going to change our mindset on this according to God's word rather than according to our culture, we've got to change the way we talk about our dreams. If we fill our minds with the world Shrek, the Shrek worldview, if we fill our minds with the remote romantic comedy worldview, then of course we're going to be deeply dissatisfied as single people or as married people where marriage is quite hard work. If we think that we're going to settle down, we're going to get a good job, and we're going to have a happy marriage, and we're going to have healthy kids, and that's going to be for everyone, if we pump that into our hearts and minds if we have the Harry and Meghan Markle view of the world, then rather than wholeheartedly trusting the Lord Jesus, we're going to be deeply discontent. See, we need to stop talking about the world that's passing away and start talking more about the things that will last. So I think we need to make a conscious effort to stop admiring each other's houses, to stop admiring each other's crockery and each other's furniture, to stop planning our holidays with more passion and accuracy than we plan our evangelism, to stop spending time thinking about what we wear, more time than, say, we spend praying for people who are lost in our lives, and to stop whatever we do trying to get friends to hook up with each other. And we need to start talking about the Lord Jesus more. We need to start talking about the things that will last more, the truths of his word more. 
It is deeply ironic, isn't it, that we find it so hard to talk about the gospel that we say is so precious to us, apart from those few hours we set aside maybe once a week at a life group. We even find it hard after church to talk about Jesus. And as a church family, we need to help our singles see how privileged they are, not that they are second class in some way. We need to not give them the hope that in Prince or Princess Charming is just around the corner all the time, as though that is the dream ticket. That is cultural, not biblical. We need to help singles see they've got unique opportunities. Rather than encouraging single people to live married lives without a husband or a wife or kids. In other words, encouraging single people to settle down, buy a house, concentrate on the worries of this world. We need to help them see that they are free to serve the Lord in a way that is a beautiful thing. We need to rejoice with them that they have more time to spend devoted to him in a whole variety of activities that they wouldn't be able to do if they were married. We need to champion that as a church. And we need as a church to live as a Christian community that allows single people to experience the tangible love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that those of us who are married need to have open homes and open families. Again, if we lived in Ghana, for instance, the way that we use our houses and our families would be totally different. It is inconceivable that you could turn up to a village in Ghana and not be welcomed into a home and not be looked after by the entire village. A Ghanaian's house is not his castle. And we need to cut through our culture that shuts our front door and says, this is time for me and my nuclear 20th century, 21st century Western family. We need to ensure that we welcome people into relationships and share life with them as singles. And isn't 1 Corinthians 7 wonderful news for you if you're struggling with same-sex attraction? If you're here tonight and thinking, I can never get married because I'm just not attracted to the opposite gender to me, and that's a battle, and it is a battle. But 1 Corinthians 7 says, you are not giving up something better for something worse by choosing to remain celibate to honor the Lord. You're not less of a person. In fact, Paul says that what you have as being a single person is best. It is better. Because fulfillment is not found in marriage. Fulfillment is found in Christ. In the love that is lavished on us in him. In a life of serving him. That's the privilege of singleness. And we need to rejoice in it. But lastly, what if if I really like her? And she really likes me. So who should I marry? Well, we've seen from this chapter, we looked at it last week, they need to be of the opposite sex to you, they need not to be married, and they need to be a Christian. That's what Paul says to the widow in verse 39. Look at verse 39 with me. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. That should be obvious, shouldn't it? If our aim is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in this present crisis, we've got to marry someone who is also living in the light of the crisis of Jesus' return. Otherwise, how are we going to effectively serve Jesus together? They'll just always be dragging us away from our priority of making Christ known. 
So I think this verse means that you are being directly disobedient to the Lord Jesus if, as a Christian, you choose to marry someone who is not a Christian. But, but how do I know if this opposite gender, not married, gorgeous Christian, is the one for me? That's what I want to know. Well, verses 36 to 40, Paul gives some very practical advice. First to uh, single people who are in a relationship, and then to widows, and by implication, widowers. Verse 36. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he's engaged to, and his passions are too strong, or, as you'll see in the footnotes, she's getting on in years, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. Now, again, we've got to remember, engagement here is not like our engagement. Our engagement, you know, what happens? You know, boy meets girl, they start going out. He spends about three years growing up and working out whether he can become a committed human being. And eventually, he goes to extraordinary lengths to ask her in some ridiculous way whether they can get married or not. I actually, I actually, one of the things I like about Meghan and Harry's engagement, I'm going to be championing this, is the just get down on your knee halfway through cooking a roast chicken. I mean, why do you need to bother with anything else? Give her the ring. It's nice and simple. Now, to be engaged in first century Corinth was very different. Uh, it may well have been arranged by your parents, probably was. It may well have been arranged when you were a child. And so that translation, getting on in years, that then is put down as well as being acting honorably towards, because his passions are too strong, it, it literally is a phrase that, that means going over the top. Uh, and that phrase in 1 Corinthians 12, 23 is used in the context of covering up parts of the body that are associated with sexual shame. So I think this verse is most accurately translated in referring to his passions being too strong. So what this verse isn't saying is that Paul is saying, no, you've, you've got a normal Western engagement, you're engaged to a girl, you've not got round to setting a date, it's getting on a bit... And Paul says, look, there are two reasons you should get married. Either you can't keep your hands off her or she's going past her sell-by date. Therefore, get on with the situation. That's not what Paul is saying here. No, no, the situation is this. You've been engaged to a girl maybe since you were a child. You've been promised in marriage to someone. It's an understanding between two families. As the two of you have grown up together, actually you have fallen in love. And you can't stop thinking about him or her sexually, that, that's a very good reason to get married, says Paul. I think get married, it's not a sin. Good, get married. In contrast, he says in verse 37, but the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who's under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. In other words, Long-standing engagement, an agreement between two families. You've known each other since childhood, but there's no real sexual attraction between you. So just stay good friends, says Paul. That, that's, if that's what you are, then there's no need to get married. Because, verse 38, so then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. If you decide not to get married, yeah, that's better. You've got more time and energy to serve the Lord. Now, how would that look today? Because we don't have many arranged marriages, more's the pity. Um, I think it might look like this. Christian man and Christian woman are sold out for serving the Lord Jesus. They've become friends in a, in a group together. And uh, one day when they're doing street evangelism in Kingston, Nick says, 
Four, Tanya, I can't keep my mind on handing out these tracks because you're so gorgeous. Do you fancy getting married? Well, maybe it doesn't quite look like that. But the principle is this. A couple become good friends as they serve the Lord together and they find that they have a growing sexual attraction for one another. Yeah, they, they fall in love, if you like. And that's a good reason to get married. It's not that... Because of the age they are and the stage of life, they feel under an enormous pressure to have an exclusive relationship with someone of the opposite gender. So they start going out with them in the hope that they might come to think that they're an appropriate person to get married to. And they find over, over the months going by that as they attempt to do the, the commitment of marriage and the communication of marriage, but they have none of the God-given glue, the covenant of marriage and the sexual intimacy of marriage they find that it gets harder and harder and harder and so after a few months they split up and everyone is sad that's not what it is it's a growing attraction within a group of friends who are serving the lord jesus together what happens when you get engaged well i guess the principle in this verse is get married quickly in our culture engagement is a step to getting married It's not a pledge for a lifetime between families. And the reason I say get married quickly is this. We saw in week one, marriage is the God-given place for sex. So it's just practical advice. Why have a long period of time when you've met the person you want to have sex with, when you hang out with them on your own trying not to have sex? Of course that causes a little bit of an issue, doesn't it? I love you. I feel very sexually attracted to you. I'm now going to have an extremely long period of time when we drive around in the same car or sit in the same darkened bedroom trying not to touch you. That doesn't work. That's not the way you're wired. And the reason I can see that people have the the long engagement is either because blokes can't commit or so that they can plan what is called the wedding. The Bible says a lot about sex and marriage. It says nothing about the wedding. You can actually get married in a month. I'll do it for you for free if you're struggling, okay? All we need is a couple of witnesses in one of our registrars. She can wear her best dress. He can wear his best suit. Um, It's great. You can have a bring and share lunch in the Fraser Chapel. It'll be a surprise what's on the menu for everyone. And think about this. Your parents will save thousands of pounds that they then can give to gospel work. And the main thing that everyone enjoys about a wedding, which is seeing their friends and family, that'll happen anyway. They'll turn up if they want to be there. The wedding is all about the wedding industry. I'll look out here. There were some people old enough to remember this. Maybe 50 years ago, if you were a working class person, your wedding happened maybe in a church, and then you went down the social club or the local village hall, and you had some pies and beers with a mate. If you were, say, a a, a sort of a more middle-class person, yeah, the wedding reception involved probably sandwiches and canapé with a cup of tea and a glass of champagne at the end. I watched Father the Bride in 1995. It was a very funny film with Steve Martin. It is now reality. And that is because of the wedding industry. It is our culture that says you need to spend thousands and thousands of pounds on the wedding. It has nothing to do with either where we were as a nation 50 years ago or anything to do with the Bible. William Wilberforce, the great Christian parliamentarian who fought for the abolition of the slave trade at the start of the 19th century, met his wife, got engaged and got married in eight days. Admittedly, he was totally loaded and owned a massive house that he could use as his own private wedding venue. But but in terms of engagement, we need to cut across our culture and in terms of weddings, we need to cut across our culture. 
Now, we're free in this, but a great question to ask is this. Does the wedding and the amount I'm spending on it say I'm living in the light of the present crisis? That's what matters to me. Jesus could come back tomorrow, and what matters to me is I'm living in the light of the present crisis. Well, you may ask, well, that's okay, that's great, but how do I know if they're the right one for me? Well, look at verse 39 again. It's quite simple. Are they unmarried? Are they a Christian? And do you want to marry them? And do they want to marry you? Well, then you're free. You're free to marry. God doesn't tell us who to marry. Because in the end, the key to marriage is not finding the right person. No, it's choosing to treat them in the right way. So that's what's happened all the way through 1 Corinthians 7. It's day by day, giving yourself to the Lord and giving yourself to them in the right way. So that your marriage is about serving God together. But, says Paul in verse 40, I think you'll probably be happier single. So as so we finish our series in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, for me, the key for us all, whether, whether married or single, and I say this as a man who regularly is ashamed of the mess that he makes of marriage, let alone the mess he makes of bringing up his children, some of whom now act as marriage counsellors, helpfully when Boo and I are having a discussion. I love it when they do that. For me, as I think for all of us, we need to end our culture of if only. If only I wasn't married to this person. If only my life was different. If only I wasn't single. And we need to pray that we'd have a gospel mindset. That, that we'd have our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. That, that he would be our joy and our hope and our love and our security and our greatest desire. And we'd be able to rejoice in whatever situation we find ourselves. Married, single, maybe sadly divorced, maybe sadly widowed or widower. And that we'd be able to serve him in the light of the present crisis. Because as the Apostle Paul says in verse 29, from now on those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know a certain future in another world where we will all enjoy a perfect relationship of love with him and with each other forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you're the God who saves. And you save us not just in terms of forgiving us today of our sin, but you save the whole of creation. You are bringing your people, a restored humanity, back under your rule through your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we might live as your image bearers for eternity, rejoicing in your presence, just like Adam and Eve walked with you in the cool of the garden. But even more spectacularly, we would see Jesus face to face forever and only know his perfect love. Our Father, please explode our vision of what the future is and grant us today, therefore, an understanding of this present crisis 
the crisis of the, the joy of having to proclaim that great news to a world desperately lost and maybe most tangibly lost in the area of relationships. Please, our Father in heaven, so fix our minds, our hearts, our hopes onto our future relationship perfected in Christ and the joy we have in enjoying that today that we might be content to serve him uh, in whatever state we find ourselves. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.